Thank you for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. This is your host, Timothy C. Ward. Today's episode is a little bit different. We are actually going to play a chat that I had with one of our contributors to the show, John Dodds. This was back around when we interviewed Kay Kenyon, and uh, her novel has some English... um, Native English tropes or language dialect, uh, and so we were kind of talking about that. We talked about his audiobook deals that he has, and his book, Bone Machines, is now on sale for $1.99, and so we wanted to mention that on the show, and it makes sense to release this chat that I had with John. I thought it might be a little bit different if I read reviews on the show, maybe at the beginning or the end. I'm curious to see what you guys think about that, if you'd rather have it at the beginning or the end. Uh, For this one, I'm going to read two reviews. First, I'm going to read the Bone Machines review that Matt Hughes wrote uh, back in 2011, and then one that John just posted um, by Mike Resnick, the Doctor and the Dinosaur. So first, Bone Machines. Set in Glasgow, Scotland, Bone Machines by John Dodds is a crime horror novel with more than a touch of thriller thrown in. The tale is a dark and gritty exploration of the world of art and that of serial killers. From the first pages we are introduced to the artist and serial killer, Stephen Morell. Morell's work falls along the lines of shock art, bone structures, grainy grainy photographs of what might be a fetus, and so forth. It is the sort of art that everyone is drawn to just to discuss how disgusting it is and rail against it. That much of the artwork is made from the bones or body parts of his victims make it even more disturbing to the reader and more satisfying to Morell as he relishes in the attention. Allowing us to know the identity of the killer so soon lets Dodds leave the reader happening, sorry, hanging at just the right moment and set up scenes that leave us dreading what is to come. Both are a mark of a true thriller, and he plays it well, extremely well. For much of Bone Machines, we follow Ray Bissett, a reporter held back by a mistake made in years past. Ray's relationship with his headstrong daughter is key to the story and provides a great deal of emotion, especially when she joins the ranks of those missing. He reluctantly joins forces with ambitious detective inspector Tom Kendrick in an effort to track down the killer that is preying on Glasgow's nightclubs. Gendrick has his own goals, and those do not necessarily coincide with Ray's, setting up plenty of conflict. There are a host of other characters, each one flawed in their own manner, and Dodds does a wonderful job of bringing them to life on the page. As with many crime novels, the villain is one of the more fascinating characters, and Dodds does not disappoint. Morell is cast as intelligent, sure of himself, and utterly convinced of his actions in perfecting his art. Throughout the story, we are given snapshots of Morell's past, including his admiration for his father's power over him, and a hint that something is not altogether quite right. Don uses this to make the reader both understand, and perhaps sympathize with, Morell, while at the same time hating him for his actions and waiting to see what happens next. All of this combines to a fantastic page-turner. If I had a gripe, it would be that several plot threads were left open that I really wanted to see concluded a hint at an act, at an incident in Heathrow and a corrupt politician that Kendrick is pursuing. I hold out hope that as Dodds has announced, he is writing a second book, D.I. T- D. I. Kendrick as the sec- central character. 
by now I believe that sequel is written. I'm not sure. I can't remember what the name of it is. Sorry, John. A worthwhile note is that Bone Machines is available not only in paperback, but also as a free podcast from Patio Books. Dodds himself does the reading, and I found it a remarkable way to step into the Scottish setting. Even when I was reading, rather than listening, I could hear Dodds' voice, and it helped build the atmosphere. Listening while reading the physical book ended up being my favorite way of devouring the story. As a writer, Dodds has a talent for drawing in the reader and not letting go. Each page is filled with vibrant description and seized with tension. This is not too surprising, as while Bone Machines is his first novel, Dodds is an experienced short story writer, having earned praise from the likes of Michael Moorcock, among others. Bone Machines hits all the right buttons. I was glued to the pages, cursed up a storm and my iPod died in the middle of a chapter, and was riveted to the end. John Dodds has talent and promise, and I look forward to seeing more from him in the future. Okay, here's our book review, The Doctor and the Dinosaurs by Mike Resnick, reviewed by John Dodds. This is uh, put out by Pyre. It's April, 1885, and famed shootist John Doc Holliday is dying of consumption. He is visited at his sickbed by shape-shifting medicine men and great Comanche chief Geronimo, and offered a deal. Another year of life in exchange for completing a mission to prevent the desecration of sacred Indian ground by paleontologists Edward Cope and Charles Marsh. In Mike Resnick's fun, fast-paced weird western, The Doctor and the Dinosaurs, the Wyoming Territory has more complexities in store for Holiday than warring bone hunters. There are Comanches who object to Geronimo's newly signed treaty with Theodore Roosevelt, and they are venting their displeasure on the paleontologists. What's more, the fact that sacred burial grounds are being dug up in the search for dinosaur bones sets in train an even more disturbing response from the Native Americans. They start bringing the dinosaurs themselves back to life, especially to tear them white men limb from limb. Theodore Roosevelt, Cole Younger, Buffalo Bill Cody, and Doc Holliday must save Cope and Marsh not only from the Comanches and rampaging tyrannosaurs, and other prehistoric monsters, but also from each other. And that won't be easy. Doesn't sound like it. The future President Roosevelt, a two-fisted hero in real life as much as in his fictional manifestation, is well up to the challenge. Holiday is somewhat more reluctant, though his surly, cynical demeanor is counterbalanced by Roosevelt's optimism and have-a-go attitude. In the spirit of the old dime novels, what us Brits would call a penny-dreadful or a ripping yarn, Though infinitely better written, Doctor and the Dinosaurs takes real-world characters on a wildly imaginative and perilous adventure. (laughs) I'm really wishing John had read this. His accent is awesome. (laughs) Multiple Hugo winner Resnick wastes not a single word in his narrative. It's all about pace, adventure, and perhaps my favorite component, sparkling dialogue. The witty repartee between Holiday and Roosevelt is a delight and full of acerbic wit. If anything, I enjoyed the interplay of the characters more than the battle scenes with the dinosaurs. Given that the creatures don't actually appear until well after the halfway point in the book, I suspect the author felt the same way. By way of bonus material, Resnick gives us not one, but five appendices. From biological, I'm sorry, bibliographical references to a list of actors who played the movie versions of the characters in the book, to true life accounts which speak to the nature and character of Holiday and Roosevelt. But the author wears all this research lightly. In fact, he can give a perfect summary of each of his characters in a line or two of description or throwaway lines of dialogue. 
truly an art to be able to do so. This is the latest in Resnick's Weird West Tales, and a fine addition to the Ouvois. <laughs> Throwing in some big words there, aren't you, John? The author has won an impressive five Hugos and has been nominated for 31 more. He has also written the Starship series, the John Justin Maller Mallory series, has sold 69 novels and more than 250 short stories, and has edited 40 anthologies. His Karanyaga series, with 67 major and minor awards and nominations to date, is the most honored series of stories in the history of science fiction. If I were to describe The Doctor and the Dinosaurs as an erudite potboiler, I mean that entirely as a compliment. Okay, very good. Thanks for your review, John and Matt. Uh, we'll post links in the show notes for where you can get John's Bone Machines book for one ninety nine, Or if you would like to just go to downpour.com, you can find it there. Thanks for listening, folks. Enjoy the show. It's basically about the business of writing, and they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. (laughs) (laughs) I like writing. I like reading. I like to immerse myself in books. That seems like a pretty good career choice. (laughs) Oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. And now, constructed on a zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Public Sci-Fi Public I think regardless of where a book comes from, you either like it or you don't like it. And uh, um, I find it interesting that, for example, some Scottish sci-fi writers actually tend to write in US language um, possibly because of um, for editorial reasons or they might think they hit a bigger audience um, you know if they write in that in that mold um, speaking personally my, my no, not all of my work but uh, the novels I've written to date the, 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 the two that have been put out by Blackstone Audio are very much Scottish, they're set in the city of Glasgow and um, my third one which I'm writing now is also uh, set in the same place but I've I've written I've written stuff which is known as less specific you know I've I've written a, a, a you know a Japanese fantasy thing sort of 12,000 word story and other things which are less specific but I, I don't know I think in terms of audience it's always difficult to know um who's reading your stuff because I think that you know, like I was saying with Kay Kenyon's, some of the things which I felt were not in keeping with Englishness were very obvious to me, but they might not be to an American reader. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's where the use of certain types of words just, I felt, grated on me because I knew they weren't correct. But at the same time, I've seen Scottish writers, when they've got into the hands of American editors, they've actually used American terminology which didn't work for me. And, and in the end, what you're saying, you know, this book flew, you know, and maybe you enjoyed the way it was read, but you didn't enjoy the characters. And the bottom line is a book works or it doesn't work, regardless of which part of the world it's coming from. Do you think that authors should stick to their 
the dialect of a country if that's what they're writing from? No, no, I don't. I don't at all. I think that um, I think it's I think it's really fun to write in um, in different uh, molds, and I think the, the in the end it's down to what fits the story. So uh, I don't write exclusively Scottish-based material, but if if something fits what I'm trying to do, that's how I will write. But I, I've written things with English characters. Japanese characters, American characters, and and set in different parts of the world, and and and, and for me, it's just down to whether it feels like the story works or or doesn't work, and it, it sort of doesn't matter. But I think if you're writing in a, in a language that is you're it's not native to you, you really need to get feedback from someone who's familiar with the idioms, if you like, on the basis that an, a native speaker will spot a fraud really quickly. Mm-hmm. And and some when I when I say a fraud, I think s- some of these things can be easily fixed. You know, in Kay Kenyon's books, in Kay Kenyon's book, there were only two or three moments where I went, "Ouch!" And I thought she had she did the English characterization and setting brilliantly, and it was literally two or three things which slightly were out of keeping with the style of the book and I don't think that was Kay Kenyon's fault I think it was the editors who should have really picked up on it but they didn't so and it wasn't enough to spoil the book for me by any stretch of the imagination so Uh, that's one thing that I'm working on as I'm I'm writing a science fiction novel that is uh, I'm not sure where I'm going to go if it's from our creation or just a whole separate uh, either way, it's far enough away from the original Earth that idioms are different. And mm-hmm. I struggle sometimes at how different it has to be and how I can use sim- like where I can use similar enough phrases. I can't remember any specific ones right now, but I heard Lou Anders once say that, you know, like, in reference to, can I use this word? It arose from the 16th century in Great Britain or mm-hmm. whatever. Can I use that in my science mm-hmm. fiction? And it, I guess some people say you can't. Um, but Lou Anders on Facebook was just saying, you know, that's ridiculous. How how much of our language is based off of all these other pasts? Uh, yes. That he says that it's more of an inter- an interpretation. Um, so when maybe if we use an idiom that um, someone might say, well, that's clearly from our creation, our slang. One might say, well, that's um, picture them having a different idiom, but it wouldn't make any sense to you if I put it the way they would. So I put it the way we know and understand. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it it, it makes complete sense. I believe that uh, language is such a is such a fluid thing, and and there are so many interrelationships. If you have something which set in the future but references something in the far past, it it sort of doesn't matter. Um, if you think of the the Dune books, for example, uh, there's a lot of stuff in there which uh, references Arabic culture and you know desert cultures just in the terms of the society and there are some words in the book as well which are derivatives of english words or you know words that would have been used in um you know maybe in in 
you know, Arabic language and so on. And so it doesn't matter. I think that I think comprehension is the most important thing. And, um, you know, I've, I've seen some sci-fi where people have tried to make up language and, um, and it just reads like nonsense. I mean, uh, you know, uh, thinking of my own books, I, I, I couldn't possibly write in, I, I could, if I chose, write in purely Glaswegian dialect from the city of Glasgow, but it would be unreadable because, you know, if you wrote exactly the way people speak, nobody would be able to understand it. It's more about the rhythm of the language rather than the specific words that people use. And I think rhythm, as in as in poetry, is more important than, you know, in poetry, rhythm's more important than rhyme, I think. And uh, it's a, I think it's the same when you're writing any, whether it's sci-fi or fantasy or anything that's not of this world, you need to have something that is suggestive of something else. You know, your your sci-fi culture might have a, a particular feel. That people might speak in a particular speech pattern, which may have may have a rhythmic feel, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to make up new words for everything they're saying because that just wouldn't work. It wouldn't be readable. And so, referencing something from the the past, as you say. Why not? You know, by all means, you should do that. One of the other things I'm trying to figure out is swearing, too. Um, yeah. I have to email the file to my work and then email it back, and they have a swearing mm-hmm. filter. <laughs> so right. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah. Uh, if I, I tried – I wrote this new horror thing, and it had some swearing in it, and email I emailed yeah. it to work, and it didn't even accept. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, well so, – uh, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> so, but as I'm going through and I'm editing, I've kept track of all the makeup swear words that I've made. I don't really like any of them, though. But at the same time, you know, would they use swear words that we have? I'm totally lost at that point. Well, I honestly, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because I, I, I know you're, I know you're a Christian, Tim. So um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I don't know how how you feel about the the use of um, you know swear words in in speech anyway. But uh, you know, it's interesting you say that you've got some in there, which is fine. I mean, I I think um, anything you write, um, you know, whether you approve of swear words or not, it's it's also down to the fact that if books are to be realistic, you know. Some people do swear, yeah. uh, and uh, you know I'm not a big swearer, but I do swear sometimes, you know, and I think it's just kind of natural human nature. But I don't know; it can be an awkward proposition because using regular swear words is probably fine, um, but if you think of the the sci-fi swear words like frack, in uh, is that Babylon? Is that Babylon Five or Star Trek? I can't remember. Anyway, no, it's. Um, what do you call it? Battlestar Galactica, where they say frack, mm-hmm. yeah. um, fracking this and fracking that. And you know what they mean, but, uh, you know, and, and it, it kind of works. But so maybe something that sounds a bit like the word you want to say would be OK. You just yeah. change a couple of letters and it's still going to work. You know? Yeah, well, and I guess back to your original statement. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I try not to swear, um, but not my my characters are not Christians. So uh, on. Sure you know, majority of them. And if they, mm-hmm. in my space opera, there are characters that may have beliefs that are similar, but the, uh, in order to protect my fiction from becoming Christian, I had to separate it from Earth, essentially. <laughs> um, sure, but, uh, yeah. 
Well, I, I I know that I know there exists a genre a genre sci, uh, Christian science fiction which um, I, I I I don't think there's any particular need for that personally because uh, you know it's uh, it's either science fiction or it isn't you know and and uh, yeah well you know I'm not a Christian but at the same time I respect other people's beliefs and uh, uh, completely and um, you know I was brought up in that tradition but uh, you, you know I I, I think there's uh, there's a difference between, you know, had you chosen to write something which is a kind of a, you know, if your impulse was to talk about your beliefs in another way, that's that's cool. Um, but but what you're trying to write do is write science fiction, and you know, for, in order for it to be plausible, I guess nowadays, um, you know, there was a time, I suppose, in the 60s and 50s, where sex wasn't allowed, swear, swearing certainly wasn't allowed, but that's no longer the case, you know, and even I have to say, you know, even being a non-Christian, you know, uh, there were some bits in Kay Kenyon's book that really took myself by surprise. And indeed, in um, Sea Change, I was really quite surprised because, I, you know, uh, there was some quite raw edged material, which I sort of wasn't expecting. Um, and I wasn't shocked, but I was slightly taken aback because um, I, I sort of wasn't expecting it and it suddenly appeared and I thought wow that's kind of quite interesting and that's quite a challenging little thing to say there and uh, so and I thought it was good but um, you know I, I think uh, it's always an interesting proposition how you how you handle that kind of material mm-hmm. and it's not I don't think it's easy and uh, I handle it in in my crime novels because that's the nature of the beast really um, and I don't have any issues with any of those but I'm, I'm dealing with real life idioms if you like a real life language so that's easier I think than writing science fiction in one in one respect and more difficult in others yes I uh, my next project will be more uh, rural fantasy uh, on mm-hmm. on earth and I've also had to try and find a way to subvert using any world religions because you know once once you have one in there it's almost like so what's he saying is it good or bad <laughs> and well i know i know well it, it, weirdly weirdly my my stuff touches on on religion in different ways but not not from um not, you know not from a critical point of view and neither from uh, it's more you know one of the things that that i find interesting about religion with a capital r is to what extent it's a political structure and um you know the the phrase church and state um it's no accident that that phrase is always linked is always it's church and state together and uh, you know part of me feeling part of my feeling is about um it's so it's great for people to have a personal faith and spirituality i would say I, I you know i try to be somewhat spiritual myself in in some respects but uh, um i don't subscribe to a religion as such but i think um you know religions at worst can become poisoned by being too involved in you know political manipulation but um you know the people i know who are christians and who who have faith are basically good people you know and and uh, uh and i think I'm always interested in that in that gulf between personal faith and religion and uh, beliefs and um, the kind of political side of things. So my first book um, has a serial killer who's got a kind of weird sort of religious obsession, and my new one has uh, a character who's a Gulf War veteran who has um, combination of uh, post traumatic stress syndrome and chemical poisoning and he's um he's kind of um 
being pursued by Sumerian demons. So there's something there about um, uh, about and kind of ancient religion which he's become sort of obsessed with in some kind of weird weird way. For some reason, you know, this that area interests me, but um, I suppose more of a more academically than than from a, a kind of um, a, a heart centered way, if you like. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. And there's definitely areas where religion can be an interesting topic. Uh, yeah. There's, yeah, I'm, it's it's touchy when you're, I feel like maybe it's more touchy when you're a Christian writing with religion because uh, it seems like people are more willing to read something that says Christianity's wrong than they're saying than if somebody has where it's right. Uh, or where yeah. they believe that it's right, well, yeah. um, and so absolutely, man, man, is it touchy I, for me? <laughs> well, absolutely, but I, but I also, you know, I, I always respect other people's um, beliefs, and um, you know, I I think there are areas where, you know, I've had some interesting debates with people about you know where they're coming from, and you know the extent to you know, I was brought up in the Christian tradition, but I, I've 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 met some people who call themselves Christian who are very. Um, against everyone else you know and and i i know that's not the case with you because i you know i've heard you the way you speak about about your faith and on your blog and so on and uh, um but you know i've i've met people who i would describe as somewhat fundamentalist in their view which i i struggle with you know i i think it's a very difficult thing to to handle and um but i have huge respect for people's faith and i think that's uh, that's a really it's a good thing you know but it is it's it's a, it's a touchy area to get into even even on a fictional aspect people can be very explosive about their feelings when it even when it's in fiction and, and you're very clear about the fact that it's fiction mm-hmm. so your project right now is your third book it's not actually my third book it's probably my fourth or fifth book um I've, i wrote a young adult one as I, you, you've got on your website and uh, i wrote an anthology for um a kind of a sort of rom- uh, historical romance anthology of longish short stories um so before that i wrote two novels which are out in, as audiobooks and one anthology of short stories and i've had a bunch of short stories in various magazines and so on and um my third book is in the same series involving my private de- my not private detective my detective uh, uh, tom kendrick um and blackstone audio i was delighted that they came back and said well we want your next one um because they they seemed quite happy with the sales so far although that that's yet to translate into anything meaningful in terms of my own finances but it's good to know that they they're looking for my next book so maybe over time that will that will work out well so i was when i was putting together your bio i was clicking through the links and stuff uh your first book is uh, bone machine yeah bone machines plural okay. yes yeah i wasn't sure about the plural <laughs> and then yeah, uh yeah. callie's kiss yes that's is correct. the second yeah. one so yeah one of the things that was interesting as i was trying to click through is it available in paper or ebook form, or is it just audio? Uh, the first one is available in, in ebook, and uh, it, it, just imagine it Inc. has put it out as a as a, a, an ebook, and basically you can grab it for free, or you can 
pay a couple of bucks for it if you want. It's it's up to the the person who's downloading it. The second one isn't available in any format other than audio. Um, but Blackstone Audio are looking to start publishing some of their work in in ebook format too. Um, so if that doesn't happen anytime soon, I'm going to look at may, maybe indie publishing uh, my second book and uh, I'll be shopping around my third one trying to get an agent for it but you know so far I've, I've not been successful in that in that venture but I think times have changed in in publishing too and you know either people just don't like what I do um, well I, I do have an audience and I do have people who like what I do but um, you know landing that agent is, is really a difficult proposition these days but you know you're sure you've talked a lot about the indie route as well so I, I may sort of put more energy into that if things don't play out in another way. When you said that you could get the uh, bone machines on ebook for free or make a donation mm-hmm. where do you go to do that? One place you can do that is um, Smashwords. In fact, I'll send you a link, Tim. It's a publisher called Just Imagine It Inc. who put it out there. They've they've changed the way they've put it out a couple of times. Um, one of your guys, Matt Hughes, reviewed it on Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing's website a while back, and and you know gave it a pretty good review. Actually, I was really I was delighted with his review. In fact, uh, before I was involved with you guys. Yeah, it basically says you set the price, so it's suggesting 99 cents. But um, you'll see what other people have been saying about it. And uh, This strikes me as an unusual path. Is it Blackstone Audio? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So... Oh, it's extremely, it's extremely un- un- unusual. T- tell um, us about how this whole thing started. Uh, how this came about was... I put out Bone Machines as a a multi-episode podcast for free um, through podiobooks.com and I I recorded it myself. Well, no, that's not exactly what happened. It began life as a small press book published in paperback in Scotland and the company who put it out went bankrupt and uh, so I didn't see any revenue at all and they they didn't really do anything in terms of publicizing marketing or anything so I thought well I took ownership back from it I thought oh well okay I've been listening to some of these audio books and I think some of them are pretty good so I'll try putting out my own version of it so I did and I did some editing as I went along as well there were things in the book that I didn't feel worked I haven't looked at it after you know several years after I'd originally done it. So I sort of edited a bit and I, it went out as about, I don't know, 15 episodes or something along those lines. And then this guy called Eric, um, Edward Stanton, heard it and he contacted me through the podcast community, said how much he'd enjoyed it. And then he contacted me um, by email and he said well um he said you know what i i am the father of the president of blackstone audio and i want him to listen to it so he said i love it um i'm gonna give it to him and he said oh he really likes it but he's because you've already put it out he wants to know if you've got anything else so i said well i have i finished the second book in the series he said well send that to us so what happened was i sent them the manuscript by email and they sent it to 
an independent reader in New York, and she basically recommended that they pick up the second book. And the next thing I knew was I got an email saying, we've decided we want both books um, to do as straight-to-audio publication, because Blackstone do this occasionally. Um, they'll, they'll pick up things that haven't been in another format, so they've not come from a publisher. They've invited somebody to submit or they picked up something through through an agent or whatever um so i i just i just got lucky i guess because this guy liked the book um and then uh, the second book was it was an, an in, a completely independent assessment so the the reader said really like this um buy it so they did they i got a contract for both books so that's how it came about as straight to audio hmm. When I think of audiobooks, I think of $30 I don't have to spend on a book. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm talking absolutely. about? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, the, the nice the nice thing is that um, they, they were the company was recently taken over by, uh, well, I don't know the name of the company, but they were went into partnership with a bigger organization, and they've got a website called downpour.com, and as part of that process, they were able to dramatically reduce the price of the audiobooks. So I think the cost of the download version of uh, their audiobooks is is probably the equivalent maybe to a hard buy. The last time I checked the prices, there was something in the order of $24. And some places you can get them cheaper than that. I don't know how that equates to hardback price, but maybe not too far, out, too far off. So they've become slightly more affordable. And I think through um, there are a couple of download audiobook sites who produce them even cheaper than that. Um, and some of them, if you subscribe, you can get a couple of books, audiobooks free, and you're not committed to buying a specific number of audiobooks. I think, um, I can't remember the name of the website, but it's something like... Audible? I, I don't... Audible, yeah, I think. And so they've got a, a kind of base, like an entry level for one book a month, mm -hmm. which is something like, what would it be, $10 a month? $15 a month, something like that? Yeah, I think it's... Um, or, yeah, like 13 yeah, that sounds about right because I think in the UK it's like seven or eight pounds. Mm -hmm. um, so you can get my books that way as well. Um, so it's really good that there are various ways. But obviously, you know, they sent me the um, the hard copy, if you like, with the kind of multiple CDs, which is really cool. And I was really excited to get those. But, you know, that wouldn't be for everyone. And I think these days the, the general consumption would be through now much more affordable um, download versions. And, you know... Um, that's that's how it, how it is right now. You said that the second book they're working on producing it as an ebook. The latest news I had, maybe about a month ago, two months ago, was that they they were they were looking to produce a number of their titles as ebooks, and I think they were interested in putting my first two out as ebooks under their own imprint. That hasn't happened so far, but I'm I'm waiting for news on that. If that happens, there will be much more. Um, you know, there'll be greater visibility than through Smashwords or something like that. Mm -hmm. Is the third book under contract? No, it's not. Um, I'm I'm basically getting to the closing stages of writing that, but they basically said they really want it, but, you know, it, it's down to whether they think they want to produce it or not. So first I have to finish it, then I have to edit it, then I have to mm -hmm. send it to them. So that's going to take time. So Gotcha. We'll see. But um, anyway, um, 
it's heading towards midnight my time, so I think I'm going to kind of call it a night time if that's okay with you. And I'll be, it's really it's really been great talking to you, and uh, we'll catch up with you tomorrow. Yeah, I snuck uh, I snuck a little interview out of you, so hope you don't mind. Uh, <laughs> not at all, not at all. Uh, I figured uh, once we started talking about the uh, use of language and idioms, I I felt like that would be uh, worthy of its own spot. Um, so that I okay. wanted to do a little interview of you for our our guests, and uh, so they would know. Well, that was very sneaky. It was sneaky. <laughs> I let out the us pronoun, and that I figured that might have been a, a giveaway. But um, anyway, yes, thank you for okay. uh, staying up uh, in in Bulgaria for us to hear and prepare for our K interview. It's been great talking to you, Tim. Catch you tomorrow. Okay, buddy. Have a good night. Bye. You too. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.